0: I'm Melinda Hemelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food and Health and Agriculture, and Find Food Truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome a fellow registered dietitian and nutritionist at Stanford University Medical Center, Joanne Hattner. Joanne also has a private practice in the San Francisco Bay Area, where she specializes in gut health. And specifically, she is an investigator in clinical research trials on probiotics, prebiotics, and their effect on irritable bowel syndrome. She is the author of Gut Insight. Probiotics and Prebiotics for Digestive Health and Well-Being. Ms. Hatner received a Bachelor of Science degree from the University of Idaho and a graduate degree from the University of California at Berkeley in Public Health. She has over 30 years experience, which includes teaching nutrition to medical students at Stanford School of Medicine, and she also speaks regularly at national health professional meetings. Joanne, welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank
0: you, Melinda. Well, I was eager to read your book. I think that we have seen an increase in GI or gastrointestinal complaints. People seem to have GI illnesses that they are not quite able to explain. And I think that your book, Gut Insight, Probiotics and Prebiotics for Digestive Health and Well-Being, is a wonderful consumer guide for helping to restore the microbiome or the microbiology, the organisms that live within our intestines. So I'm delighted to have you with me. Thank you. Well, let's start first with just a simple question. Why did you write this book?
1: I wrote the book because I could only imagine a consumer standing in front of the cold case looking at all the products that were beginning to take space on the shelf and not understanding a thing about probiotics. You know, we were really a little late in getting these products. I mean, if you were in Europe, if you were in Asia, you saw products with probiotics long before we saw them here. Hmm. So when we did get them, it seemed like a whole rash of products came in, and then there were products for children and... And there were products within the yogurt industry that were, were just so different, whether they were flavored or not flavored or nonfat or full fat, and who knew what they were? And that's why I wrote the book.
0: Yeah, I think we're still there. I, I read something that said that probiotics are either the leading or one of the top three dietary supplements on the market today and even I as a dietitian, I go in and just as you said I look in the refrigerated case and I think how on earth can we make sense of these products but what I like about your book is that it's food focused
1: exactly you know I'm a nutritionist and food is my product so I promote food natural food and if you can do it with food Why wouldn't you do it with food rather than looking for the right supplement for you? People take supplements, but then they decide, oh, they're a little too expensive or I'm going to miss a few weeks. But food, you can establish a habit, and that habit is that you're really enjoying it and you're eating it on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. In
0: your book, you mention that you've counseled hundreds of patients with digestive ills, and that runs the the whole range from chronic constipation to diarrhea, bloating, and gas. I'm curious to know, what have you learned over the years from your patients?
1: Well, it's interesting because in the beginning, I was dealing in pediatric patients. And I learned about gut physiology. So I learned if you have a damaged GI tract, you need to feed it carefully and refeed it carefully. And so that was really important to me to understand, for example, why when we took milk out of the diet for the gut to rest, we would first add back yogurt Mm -hmm. with the live active cultures. And why did we do that? We did that because yogurt has cultures that actually help to digest lactose. So I learned those things just about gut physiology. And then as I began to deal with the older population... And into teens and adults, I developed a new appreciation for the gut-brain communication. Mm -hmm. And I think so much of today's illness may well be related to what's going on in our stressful lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I wanted to ask
0: you if you had any insights about the rise in GI illness. I hear terms like leaky gut, for example, when I go to meetings. And I learned that there's this single layer of epithelial cells that are lining our GI tract. And I realized just how vulnerable we really are to perhaps outside toxins.
1: Yes. And most of the toxins enter through our mouth because it's in the food we eat, unfortunately, on occasion, in water that we drink, and actually in people that we kiss. So we get those microbes coming into our mouth and entering into our GI tract. And that is why the gastrointestinal tract is the largest immune system in the body. It really has to protect us. So it has these layers to protect us within the gastrointestinal tract. And if you have any damage there, then those pathogens may well enter or an allergen might well enter, and that can cause an immune response. So we have to be very careful, I think, to be sure that we have a healthy GI tract to keep that epithelial leather healthy. Mm -hmm.
0: From your book, I've learned that it's going to take both foods that contain probiotics and foods that contain prebiotics to keep the gut microorganisms at their peak form. So we should probably explain to our listeners the difference between probiotics and prebiotics.
1: A probiotic, if you just remember, probiotics are live active cultures. So when you pick up a carton of yogurt or a carton of kefir, you will see on the front of the label live active cultures. And if you turn it around, you will actually see which cultures are in that product. Live active cultures, those cultures are really not going to act any differently in our GI tract than our natural bacteria in our GI tract. We're just enhancing by adding those live active cultures. The prebiotics are really fibers non-digestible, they pass through the GI tract, they survive the stomach acidity, they don't get digested, they go all the way into the colon where most of our gut microflora is. And their purpose through fermentation is actually to support the healthy bacteria. And there's two families that we consider within that genera, the lactobacillus and the bifidobacteria.
0: Well, when I buy yogurt, and I actually brought a label of a yogurt that I like very much, well, there are several that I like on the market. And, of course, I usually always try to buy organic yogurt. But there's another product on the market called Siggy's that is not organic. They make it without the use of recombinant bovine growth hormone, which is good. But it's a very low-sugar yogurt. And it says what live cultures they have in there. But I don't know how to interpret that. And I sense that other consumers may be in the same boat. So when we're looking at a yogurt container, and I also like Nancy's yogurt. You also mentioned that one in your book out of Oregon, I believe. And of course, I love the Stonyfield products as well. And they're also organic. But it's the same thing. I look at those labels and I see different bacteria, different live cultures. I don't know how many, I don't know what each of those strains specifically does. How do I make sense of the label?
1: Well, I think you've asked an important question. The FDA does not require that the strain go on the label. So on occasion, for example, you mentioned Nancy's, you will see that they actually give the strain. For example, Bifidobacterium LKCI l LB3. LB3 is a strain. So you can actually find strains on some yogurts. And what I like about it is then you know it's coming from... Also, they will give the source of the strain, for example, a Hmm. reputable source. Other yogurts, they all start with the same starter cultures. Every yogurt in the United States. LB and ST. So you're always going to get those. But that's really... Starter cultures. So anything else they add is just enhancing your yogurt product. And, you know, the way you tell if it's appropriate for you, is it working? Uh-huh. And I always tell people that. You know, well, did you introduce the yogurt? How did you feel? Did you feel like your gut was tolerating it? Did it change regularity at all? Because some people want their regularity adjusted. You know, how did you tolerate it? And a lot of people tolerate them fine, and other people say, well, I didn't tolerate this one, but I went to another one. I prefer you use the plain Mm -hmm. and add your own flavoring, but I know a lot of people like to buy it flavored. Right. And the same thing with kefir. I mean, you're going to read a multitude of different uh, probiotics that are in there, but people will try it, and then they will tell you, I feel better. So I think that's the true test, rather than trying to decipher exactly which strain you need.
0: Well, how soon will I know if a particular yogurt product is improving my gut health? Will I expect to feel better, say, within 16, 24 hours, or will it take a little bit longer?
1: Oh, no, it'll take longer, because obviously, first of all, you have to have... (laughs) You have to consider transit time, right <laughs> How long does it take to you through? But I would try it for at least ten days. okay, yeah, if not longer. I mean some of the yogurt manufacturers will say, you know you need to try this for at least two weeks, but I would try it for at least ten days. You know those probiotics are not thought to stay. they're not thought to actually become residents of your gut microbiota right they are thought that if you take by mouth probiotics, that they will do their job and then they're not going to become residents. We have our own fingerprints, so to speak. Yes. And it's very hard to change that. So that's why probiotics really should be eaten every few days.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And is yogurt then our major source of probiotics? I'm assuming it is.
1: Yes, it is. You know, when you think of it worldwide, mammalian milk, whether it was goat's milk or sheep's milk, or even, for example, in Mongolian, mare's milk is fermented. Mm. And it's throughout the world that we have fermented milk. Now, what happens when we pasteurize the milk is that we remove some of those natural organisms and we have to put back the starter cultures, for example. But it's much safer Mm -hmm. to have a pasteurized milk and then the starter cultures. I see. You
0: want to talk a little bit about kefir, perhaps, and how does kefir vary from the cow's milk or other kinds of yogurt that we might find on the market?
1: Well, it's not really that different. Uh, Kefir is made from cow's milk. We used to have the soy on the market, but that's been removed, I believe, because probably FDA has said kefir has to be made with milk. I see. And it has a multitude of strains depending on the manufacturer as well. And some people find it much more effective. And that's taking, say, a small glass in the morning, for example. And if they've had either constipation or diarrhea, you know, I have heard testimonials on kefir. And there are some studies on kefir as well. I tried not to put anything in the book that we couldn't find some studies. Right. And we even found them, for example, on the soy products. So if you cannot tolerate milk, you can use the soy yogurt. Okay.
0: Well, this is great information to know. Let me remind our listeners that we are speaking with Joanne Hattner. She is a fellow registered dietitian and the author of Gut Insight, Probiotics and Prebiotics for Digestive Health and Well-Being. She is based in the San Francisco Bay Area and does work at Stanford Medical Center. Let me ask you Joanne about the prebiotic specifically. What I thought was so interesting in your book is that you went through there's a definition in order to be a prebiotic and it has to have three specific factors. And then you give us a list of different prebiotics. So first define for me the definition of a prebiotic.
1: Well, a prebiotic is really a fermentable fiber and Prebiotics are found naturally in foods or some of the scientists have, for example, developed ingredients, for example, inulin as a prebiotic. And what they do is that they selectively stimulate the growth and the activity of beneficial bacteria. And I said earlier, the beneficial bacteria are primarily in the two families that we know, the two genera, which is the bifidobacteria and the bacteria. And it's interesting that these bacteria will utilize fructose. And so the fructose that is in the fructans are actually being utilized by those bacteria, as well as glucose, as well as the short-chain fatty acids that are produced with the fermentation. So they actually continue to thrive because they're being fed. They're being fed these fermentable fibers. And it takes the fermentation process itself in the colon to actually present the nutrients to the bacteria. And I always tell my students that bacteria have to eat too, mm-hmm. and prebiotics are their food. Now, some people believe it's more important to eat prebiotics than even to take the live active cultures of probiotics in food because we are promoting the activity of the beneficial bacteria. And yes, I recommend you eat them every day. Mm -hmm. This is so
0: interesting to me because when I think about the way our diet has progressed over time, we've gone to a more processed diet, and I'm thinking what's missing from that processed food diet, and it's these wonderful fibers. So is it any wonder that we're seeing an increased incidence of these gut disorders?
1: Well, some people do believe that it's related to the fact that we don't have as much diversity Mm -hmm. in our gut microflora. And these things are just being studied. Like, how do we get more diversity, for example? Or how do we really support the beneficial bacteria and what are their roles? And it's just fascinating. The Science is fascinating. It is. But I think the most important thing about the prebiotics is, as you mentioned, These are foods that many people have decided they don't tolerate. And so they have removed them from their diet. But the stars of prebiotics are the onion, the garlic, the leeks, the artichoke. So I always tell people, if you don't tolerate raw onion, that's fine. Try a cooked shallot or try a spring onion. You know, it's within that family that is used worldwide in cuisine, Mm -hmm. as well as the garlic. So again, if you don't tolerate garlic in one form, try it in another form uh, because that is a prebiotic. The other thing, interestingly, one of the major sources of inulin in our diet is whole wheat. So all of the people that have taken whole wheat out of the diet have a lower inulin intake. Inulin is a prebiotic. So people are concerned about this, and that's why I think it's important to look at the listing of the prebiotic foods and say, what can I eat within here? And certainly most everybody will tolerate the banana and the fruits, but, you know, you need a lot. So that's why I like to go to the stars, which are the onion-garlic family, for example.
0: Mm-hmm. And you've got them divided up in your book as prebiotic stars that are designated with an asterisk, and then you've also got prebiotic potentials. Do you want to talk yes. a little bit about what that means exactly?
1: Well, foods were not actually analyzed until Van Lu decided in 1995, in the 90s, to analyze these foods as a source of inulin and oligosaccharides. And when we were writing the book, we called around and, and wrote to various researchers and said, where did you get these prebiotic foods? You know, what listing did you use? And they all said, we use Van Lu." So... Stars means that those foods have actually been analyzed. I see. Prebiotics. Now, ideally, the food would be fed to humans, and then we would determine whether or not they were beneficial to the gut microflora. And we look at things like, you know, what came out in the stool and what was the acidity of the stool and a number of things. And we would determine whether or not it had a prebiotic action. But those studies are so extensive Mm -hmm. that we only have a few. So as soon as a study comes out, we put it in as a potential. You know, a study needs to be repeated, really. That's
0: right. I thought it was so interesting that dandelion greens are listed as a starred prebiotic. And it's funny that I was looking at this book just maybe a week or so after I received some sort of literature from the lawn chemical company telling me, you know, I need to kill all these dandelions in my, in my lawn. And I thought, I don't think so. I think we should be harvesting those greens and using them to help feed our microbiota in our guts.
1: Exactly. I mean, women in the Mediterranean, women in Greece, they have these big white aprons with big pockets, and they go out in the springtime and gather the greens. You can find them now in our open markets, our farmer's markets, yes. and sometimes in the supermarket. But yes, it's so true. We have changed our diet so much. We have moved away from those natural foods. We've moved away from a lot of fermented foods. Fermented foods are starting to come back into the diet. Many people are fermenting vegetables now. know, we don't know if those are, are prebiotic, but... They're definitely made with the lactobacillus. And, you know, that's the natural culture of of the vegetable. Nothing's being added. So we need more studies on those foods, certainly. But when you look at how they've been used for hundreds of years and associated with health benefits, And we've taken a lot of those foods out, so they're just beginning to come back.
0: I wanted to ask you about fermented foods like kimchi and sauerkrauts, and I agree, I'm thrilled to see all the new cultured foods at my even my local farmer's market now. How do they benefit the gut exactly? Are they also then carriers of these microorganisms that help feed the microorganisms in our gut?
1: Well, the fermenting vegetables actually have a lactic acid bacteria, so many people think that lactic acid bacteria may actually have probiotic potential. I see. And so when the kimchi is fermenting, they're thinking that perhaps that has probiotic activity. More studies certainly done in the Korean literature than in our literature. But also it's interesting that some of the major ingredients that are added to kimchi are garlic. Right. Now, What a combination. (laughs) Yeah. You know, how nice. I mean, I would love, I would love for everyone just to get a basket and put their onions and their garlic and their shallots, you know. I I like to put it in the cupboard because they say it should be dark. And then pull those out at night when you're getting ready to prepare a meal because there's almost, I can't tell you how many dishes you can use those in. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that leads me to a question about quantity because I think it's sort of the American way, right, to think that if a little is good, more must be better. So when we're talking about yogurt or when we're talking about even some of these prebiotic foods, do you recommend a minimum amount? Is there a can you go overboard?
1: Well, you certainly can, particularly if you're not used to eating them. Mhm. And I think we all know that you can go overboard, and feel the results of the fermentation. And that's not a pleasant effect. So when you're starting new plant foods, particularly the prebiotic foods, I would start them gradually. I mean, artichokes are pretty well tolerated, but if you get a bowl of sunchokes that you've never eaten before, you may well feel the effects of that. So you want to start gradually and build up tolerance. And I think you do. You know, there's a really interesting study in Japan where the Japanese were eating a particular type of seaweed. They actually developed microbiota that could ferment that seaweed. So something's going on there that when you put it in your diet, the microbiota is adjusting. That's very interesting.
0: I also saw an article that you wrote for dietitians. It's in a newsletter put out by the dry bean industry. But I thought it was very interesting how you said we need to eat more beans. Yes, people always say, I don't want to eat beans, I'm going out tonight. It creates flatulence and everybody's uncomfortable with it. But you recommended starting small, half a cup of beans every day, and then, lo and behold, over time, we can eat the beans and not have the flatulence.
1: And that was a study by Wynnum, and they actually did that where they gave the subjects the beans each day. And in the beginning, some of them did have flatulence and gas, but then they developed tolerance. And again, when you think of the populations of the world that eat these beans and eat legumes, and so if you're not used to eating them, then that's the recommendation. You start with a small amount, and you eat them frequently.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, we're almost out of time, and I want to make sure I give you an opportunity to share anything you'd like about your research and your work for this book.
1: Well, I honestly think the most important thing is to embrace the food and to think about how can I get more natural plant food in my diet. Certainly, you're going to increase fiber, and just increasing fiber is important. And then just check out now which are the prebiotic fiber foods. Which ones do we know? And can I increase those in my diet as well? Maybe gradually so I develop tolerance. And as far as the probiotics, you can get enough through food. You can get enough through going to the cold case and looking for the yogurt that you want and looking for the kefir that you want and trying those gradually as well, whether you're using a milk base in the yogurt or you're using a soy base.
0: And have you seen drastic changes in your patients with irritable bowel syndrome simply by following these dietary tips?
1: Irritable bowel is one of the most difficult things to treat. And in all honesty, after doing those studies, I'm convinced there's probably a gut brain axis and communication. And whether or not it starts in the brain and goes to the gut, in other words, we're under great stress and it goes to the gut and we get those symptoms, or whether or not it starts in the gut and goes to the brain, we don't know. Hmm. But I think that there's more and more research on that. And the more you talk to people, I'll say to them, so tell me again what you had to eat and where were you and what were the circumstances. And it's very interesting how sometimes they'll say, oh, yes, you're right. I was hurried, I was under stress, I was going to a meeting and I was having symptoms. Mm-hmm. So, I think you have to really not only treat it with food, but you also have to treat it with other things like mindfulness and other kinds of lifestyle factors.
0: Well, Joanne, I want to thank you so much for sharing your time with us this afternoon, and I want to also remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. We have been speaking with Joanne Hattner. She is a registered dietitian and nutritionist at Stanford University Medical Center with over 30 years' experience, and specifically she is an investigator in clinical research trials on probiotics, prebiotics, and their effects on IBS. She's also the author of the book we've been discussing titled Gut Insight, Probiotics and Prebiotics for Digestive Health and Well-Being. And the website for that is simply www.gutinsight.com. Thank you again, Joanne, and thank you listeners for joining us.
1: Thank you.